1: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life.
2: No purchase necessary. BTW. void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
1: This was a crucial question for the debates who one presidential election year. Belt buckle or no belt buckle? Make no mistake, everything that appeared on TV in the 1976 debates between the President of the United States, Gerald Ford, and his Democratic challenger, Jimmy Carter, was prearranged. It was the first time anyone had debated an incumbent live on TV, and it wasn't something the Carters team wanted. As the challenger, he had a double-digit lead, and he didn't need this live television event. His team was wary of their guy being next to a POTUS, live on TV. Ford challenged Carter to a debate in a surprise declaration in his acceptance speech at the RNC convention in Kansas City that year. The people deserve to hear from us, he boldly declared. We take debates for granted now, right? After the conventions, we go to the debates. It's part of the election. But if President Ford had not been so far down in the polls compared to this out-of-nowhere refreshing new candidate with a peanut-farmer smile, so not Watergate, so a Nixon, so disimperial imperial presidency, who was running around the country taking shots at President Ford, who didn't have the strain of governing, if he didn't need to get this guy in the ring, it's doubtful whether we would even have TV debates as part of our politics now. Yes, they had those debates in 1960, but don't forget, Lyndon Johnson didn't debate Goldwater in 64, Nixon didn't debate Humphrey in 68, nor McGovern in 72. Debates could have been a fluke of early television and forgotten about. But then came 1976, and of course Carter, once challenged, couldn't say no. But he would do everything he could to make himself equal to a president of the United States. Height was a factor. Ford was three and a half inches taller than Carter. Not that much taller, but enough to worry about how would it look. So, the arrangement was made. Carter's podium would go to one inch below his belt buckle. Ford's podium would go two inches above his belt buckle, knocking down that imperial presidency a little bit. In exchange, Ford's people would get something that they wanted. They get to pick the background color. The blue that they felt would be good against his thinning hair. And a brace to hold Ford's glass of water on the podium. He had been the butt of jokes as a klutz, and if he dropped that water during the debate, Chevy Chase would never have let him forget it. But if Ford thought he was going to nonchalantly put a seal of the President of the United States on his podium, he had another thing coming from Carter's negotiation team. Now, Ford's people just said, hey, that seal goes wherever the president goes. Here he's speaking. Every time he's speaking, that seal's there. No way, Carter's team said. President's never debated before. He's not having that seal here. That little bit of negotiation has lasted through time and debates.
3: I'm sorry, could I just pause Did I understand you to say, sir, that the Russians are not using Eastern Europe as their own sphere of influence and occupying most of the countries there and and making sure with their troops that it's a that it's a communist zone whereas on our side of the line the Italians and the French are still flirting with...
4: I don't believe uh, Mr. Frankel that uh, the Yugoslavians consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union I don't believe that the Romanians consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union I don't believe that the Poles consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. Each of those countries is independent, autonomous, it has its own territorial integrity, and the United States does not concede that those countries are under the domination of the Soviet Union. As a matter of fact, I visited Poland, uh, Yugoslavia, and Romania to make certain that the people of those countries understood that the President of the United States and the people of the United States are dedicated to their independence, their autonomy, and their freedom. Governor Carter,
3: I have your response. Well, in the first place, I'm not criticizing His Holiness the Pope. I was talking about Mr. Ford. The um, fact is, that secrecy has surrounded the decisions made by the Ford administration. In the case of uh, the Helsinki Agreement, it may have been a good agreement at the beginning, but we have failed to enforce the so-called basket three part, which ensures the right of people to migrate, to join the families, to be free, to speak out. The Soviet Union is still jamming Radio Free Europe. Radio, uh, uh, Radio Free Europe is being jammed. We've also seen a very serious a problem with the so-called Sonnenfeld document, which apparently Mr. Ford has just endorsed, which said that there's an organic linkage between the Eastern European countries and the Soviet Union. And I would like to see Mr. Ford convince the Polish-Americans and the Czech-Americans and the Hungarian-Americans in this country that those countries don't live under the domination and supervision of the Soviet Union behind the Iron uh, Curtain.
1: Of course... Four years later, it didn't stop Carter's people from trying to put a seal on his podium during his debate with Reagan, which was also rejected. Next, would the candidates stand or sit? Would they stand when one is talking and then sit down after they're done? Well, that one required the debate negotiators to actually call Ford and Carter to get their permission. They would stand, statesmanlike. It was a heady time. 200 years of America and lots of trinkets. Belt buckles, flag ties, patches, ceramic mugs with stars and stripes and 76 blazing in order to celebrate it. In space, America's great present was felt as the Viking 1 spacecraft landed on Mars and sent back photos. And on Earth, Farrah Faucet posters became a major fad. And you went to the theater to watch Carrie, Network, the Bad News Bears, or see a Philadelphia underdog get a chance to take on the heavyweight champion of the world. And why not go to the theater? Gas is just 59 cents a gallon. If you flicked on your portable FM radio, you could hear Eldon John and Kiki D. sing, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Or the Bee Gees sing, You Should Be Dancing. You could hear any number of new disco hits, virtually static-free. Meanwhile, in the political world, experimentation was going on as well, in both parties. Each candidate was not in line with the party establishment or party delegates. Ford, whose poll rating had dropped when he pardoned Nixon, picked Nelson Rockefeller as his vice president and then drew a bruising primary campaign from California Governor Ronald Reagan. He barely won his nomination with very little expectation now of victory. With Jimmy Carter 40 points ahead of Gerald Ford, he invoked the needs of the American people. The American people, Ford said, deserved in his presidential opinion the right to hear from their candidates. We'll never know what his recommendation would have been if he was 40 points up instead of down. But in any case, his call was great for television history. On accepting the nomination of the Republican Party in Kansas City, he said, I am ready. I am eager to go before the American people and debate the real issues face-to-face with Jimmy Carter. The American people have a right to know firsthand exactly where both of us stand. What he did not call for was a debate between the man he had selected, his running mate in Kansas City, Bob Dole, senator from Kansas, and the man that Jimmy Carter had selected, Senator Walter Mondale of Minnesota. But by putting the needs of the American people first, the American people deserved to hear by elevating debates as a public good that the American people needed, he invited it. So the League of Women Voters running the presidential debates at this point, particularly League Executive Director Peggy Lample, figured that three vice presidents had become presidents since 1945. Current president had been a vice president. The people should hear from the number twos as well. There doesn't seem to have been serious objection to a vice presidential debate at the negotiation sessions in 76 between the Ford and Carter campaigns. League officials seem to have felt that the Democrats were more favorable to the idea than the Republicans, but there was little real objection. Yet, Senator Bob Dole, as he campaigned, made it clear that he did not take the idea seriously. He said that the voters were more interested in going to a Friday night football game than in listening to the vice presidential candidate's debate. He frequently referred to the event as Doyle and Mundale debates. People don't even know our names. On the day of the debate, Dole said he would rather have the four or five days preparation time that he took to spend campaigning. But it turned out to be more of an important event than it would have seemed to Dole. Stakes were high as the race at the top of the ticket between Carter and Ford was so close. Jimmy Carter had been stunned as President Ford was aggressive and sharp in their first debate. Then Ford had made a blunder in the second debate, saying there was no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe. It didn't make sense, and it didn't look like Ford was connected with reality. Polls were tight. 48 to 42, Carter over Ford. So it went to the Veep candidates for the next possible turning point of this closed campaign. The Bob Dole of 1976, and you can go on YouTube and watch it, was a bit harsher in tone, and he was being sent out as Ford was staying in the White House and playing kind of a Rose Garden strategy where he wouldn't sink to Carter's level. Bob Dole was sent out to hit the campaign stump and attack the Carter-Mondale ticket. And that's who showed up at the debate October 15, 1976. Walter Mondale and Bob Dole meet in Houston. He adopted that Veep candidate role of the hatchet man. Democrats like to talk about Watergate, he said, but they voted against it when we tried to extend the investigation to all corruption. If Democrats were investigated, there would be a hue and cry. Turning to his debating opponent, he then said, Mondale would drop dead. Although there was a slight joke to everything Dole was saying in this debate, he didn't give much evidence of a smile. Still, Dole established what has generally been the rule of a vice presidential debate since then. He attacked the top of the ticket more than the fellow at the bottom. I just wish Carter had a foreign policy, he said. Doesn't have any foreign experience. I don't know why he was interviewed in Playboy. I guess we'll give him the bunny vote. Good thing there are three debates. Carter's got three positions on every issue. But the best line, or so he thought, he held close to his chest. He was ready to use in defense. See, Dole knew that he'd get asked about Gerald Ford's pardon of Nixon, which was controversial in this election. Dole, as a senator running for reelection two years before, had criticized Ford for pardoning Nixon. So when asked about it, Dole retorted, I don't want any rub off here. He brings up Watergate all the time. And then he said they didn't have anything to do with Watergate. The Nixon pardon didn't apply to him or Ford any more than these so-called Democrat wars, which he listed as World War II, the war in Korea, Vietnam, would apply to Carter and Mondale. But that wasn't enough. Then he said, you know, I did a calculation the other day. I figured up how many were killed in war started by Democrats. 1.6 million Americans, enough to fill the city of Detroit. If you want to go back and rake that over and over, we can do that. That didn't go over so well in the debate. Many years later, he would tell PBS, in those days you had a stack of briefing books about too high. And that was in the briefing book, which I received from the Ford people, the National Committee, and I guess I should have exercised my own judgment. Mondale was very anxious to get the chance to help out his running mate again in 1980, now that he was vice president. Though the presidential candidates didn't agree to a debate yet, Mondale personally sent a telegram to the League of Women Voters to try to get an event going at the vice presidential level. But the vice presidential nominee of the Republican Party, George H.W. Bush, refused to yield, dubbing the vice presidential debates as strictly minor league, comparing the two candidates to minor league baseball players the toledo mudheads, he said well something happened after 1980 which the media and certainly the league of women voters couldn't ignore geraldine ferraro congresswoman from new york was chosen as the democrats vice presidential candidate going into the debate vice president bush would now face up with the first woman candidate on a major party national ticket the democrats certainly wanted to showcase her and negotiated a vp debate in that debate george h w bush made the decision to treat her as any candidate, and was aggressive right off the back, attacking her liberal voting record, attacking her for having differences with her running mate Mondale, while he, as vice president, had absolute loyalty to Reagan. A key moment of the debate occurred when he differed on the covert ops in foreign policy and said, but let me help you with the difference, Miss Ferraro, between Iran and the embassy in Lebanon. To start with, he should have said Congresswoman Ferraro. That led to her response. I almost resent, Vice President Bush, your patronizing attitude that you have to teach me about foreign policy. Years later, Bush would tell Jim Lair, I think she was ready. She probably had been rehearsed for that, and I can't even remember what it was. And I said, let me help you with it or something. And that brought the crowd to its feet. It's show business, Jim. It's not really debating. We haven't discussed the most important moment of vice presidential debating, the one which everyone knows, which will probably hold the title for some time, the debate of 1988 between Senator Lloyd Benson of Texas and Dan Quayle of Indiana. It's well documented, and I almost do need to tell you the moment, and of course it involved Benson telling Quayle, I knew Jack Kennedy, I served with Jack Kennedy. Senator, you are no Jack Kennedy.
0: If that situation, which would be very tragic, happens, I will be prepared to carry out the responsibilities of the presidency of the United States of America. And I will be prepared to do that. I will be prepared not only because of my service in the Congress, but because of my ability to communicate and to lead. It is not just age, it's accomplishments, it's experience. I have far more experience than many others that sought the office of vice president of this country. I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. I will be prepared to deal with the people in the Bush administration if that unfortunate event would ever occur. Senator Benson?
3: Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. What has to be done?
4: What has to be done? In a situation like that,
3: please, in a please, situation again like again, that, you're only taking time is to call to in the joint. Your own candidate.
0: That was really uncalled for, Senator.
3: You're the one that was making the comparison, Senator. And I'm one who knew him well. And frankly, I think you're so far apart in the objectives you choose for your country that I did not think the comparison was well taken.
4: For the next 90 minutes, we will
0: be questioning the candidates following a format designed and agreed to by representatives of the two campaigns.
1: Of course, the elder senator was playing on a double entendre that the audience picked up on, but he could ostensibly claim not to be participating in. He was just saying, you don't support the policies that Jack Kennedy did. But of course, what he really meant to say to the TV audience was that Quayle was not the type of man, person, or politician that the iconic former president was, that he didn't deserve to be on the national stage. So when Quayle reacted to that and said, Senator, that was uncalled for. Lloyd Benson just responded, "You are the one making the comparison. Folks, the old guy beats outraged newbie any time." Benson became, of the entire 1988 election, the most beloved, the highest poll ratings of all four people running. But he wasn't on the top of the ticket. Now I will engage in a little bit of a defense of Dan Quayle here on this point. Obviously, not a great TV moment, but. Dan Quell's statement was made about the Jack Kennedy when he was under attack for his perceived lack of experience. Serious Republicans like Al Haig said, you know, your pick was the dumbest move George Bush could have made. So in answering the question during the debate, Dan Quell said the question goes to whether I'm qualified, I have more experience in Congress than Jack Kennedy did when he ran for president. So here was Quayle running for vice president. A little bit of defense of Dan Quayle there It wasn't an attempt to claim that he was a Kennedy. It was a, it was a response to an attack. He entered the House in 1977. Okay, then he did four years in the House, eight years in the Senate, that's twelve years total. Kennedy entered the House in 1946, four years in the House, eight years in the Senate. Same experience as Kennedy. So Kennedy is a hero that's so adored, though it's not difficult to see how in a well-prepared no purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy Woodruff, one of the moderators in that room, said that as much as they tried, there was no way they could calm the audience after that comment. It was a long way from the days of, my dear sir, will it be agreeable to make an arrangement for you and myself to divide time and address the same audiences in the present canvas, your obedient servant? A Lincoln. That letter to Senator Stephen Douglas that began the process of a series of well-publicized debates that would help make Lincoln a presidential contender. The answer back was yes, of course, and let's do it in each of Illinois' congressional districts. Lincoln accepted, and Douglas picked. Ottawa, Freeport, Jonesboro, Charleston, Galesburg, Quincy, and Alton And he said, I will speak at Ottawa first, you at Freeport, and then we will alternate. Abraham Lincoln responds, although by terms you propose, you take four openings to my three, I accede and thus close the arrangement. A little 19th century snark from A. Lincoln, but nonetheless, the negotiations for America's most famous debate were finished right there with letters between the candidates. The memory of that debate 100 years before was on the mind of 1950s America. Few trial runs, too, with this new medium of television. Primary appearances with Adelaide Stevenson and Estes Kefauver battling for the presidential nomination in 1956. And as the number of TV sets in homes had increased from 4.4 million in 1950 to 40 million in 1960, some 88% TV was important. The candidates had to speak to it. Something else was going on. This new TV medium was seen as less intelligent than the written word was being criticized. It was competing with the key opinion makers and considered thoughts, the newspaper and the magazine. It might be out of control. And then the idea that game show contestants had been coached. To lose so that someone else could win the prize triggered congressional hearings, which what we were seeing on TV, really what we were seeing, scandal, scandal. So in 1960, the network said that they'd give at least eight hours each to the two candidates. But the networks would still wish to control how it was used, how it was presented to make it the most interesting to viewers. They did not want to have Adlai Stevenson's talking head on for an hour. They inquired of the campaigns as to a Lincoln-Douglas-like series of great debates on TV for 1960, with both candidates of both parties appearing together. Kennedy's campaign was quick to accept. President Eisenhower suggested that his vice president running that year, Richard Nixon, not accept. He should not stoop to a challenger's level and give Kennedy an opportunity that he otherwise wouldn't have. He was, after all, the vice president of the United States. But after being questioned about it in a press conference and a lot of pressure in the news media and on TV, Nixon accepted. Nixon was known to be a good debater. He had handled TV before. He had shown up, Nikita Khrushchev, a little uh, impromptu TV debate that they had. I knew that it would be a Kennedy advantage, Nixon said in his memoirs, noting that Kennedy could take the offense and Nixon would be forced on the defense defending the Eisenhower record. But he said, there was no way I could refuse to debate without the media and the Kennedy campaign turning the refusal into a campaign issue. The question was, Nixon said, how to give Kennedy less advantage. Thus, they began negotiations at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. There would be four debates, the second and the fourth would be press conference style press would ask questions, the candidates answered, and the first and the third would be more of a debate style. Topics presented, statements and rebuttals. Nixon's negotiations would prove to be critical to the outcome of the debates, figuring that the audience for the last debate would be the highest. Now, there was no precedent for these TV debates before. Nixon insisted on discussing the foreign policy information last. And he later admitted it turned out to be his biggest mistake. Because the first debate was watched by more people. And that debate was on domestic issues. Now, Kennedy, as a member of the House and Senate Labor Committee, was able to handle domestic policy quite easily. When you look at most of the TV debates that we have had since 1960, a lot of it is based on the precedent set in that CBS Studios in that year. Most of it from the Nixon people. They insisted on having lecterns versus simply having candidates standing. They insisted on a table between the media and the two candidates. They wanted a good distance between Nixon and Kennedy. Nixon wanted both candidates sitting down. Here, Kennedy's people objected. Kennedy's people knew that Nixon had hurt his knee, and the standing would cause him to jerk a bit, which would look unstable, throw him off a bit. And you thought football was the only sport where injuries were taken advantage of. Okay, Nixon said, but... They asked that the candidate sit down while the other candidate was speaking, limiting reaction shots or any upstaging while Nixon was speaking. Yes, these debate negotiations have not always been based on principled matters. In 1984, Democrats would negotiate an hour-and-a-half debate with President Ronald Reagan. Why? So that they could discuss the issues in a more robust fashion, right? Hmm. Knowing his age and knowing that his responses would tend to be more of the scripted variety. It had always been his style, the good sound bites, his prepared answers. Knowing that they would run out after a certain point of time, they insisted on a longer format. And indeed, in their first debate, Democratic candidate Walter Mondale performed surprisingly well, and Reagan meandered, one of his worst performances on television ever. Yet in the second debate, he would make quick work of his Democratic opponent. Mondale would get no third chance at the debates. His team had given up three debates for that length of an hour and a half that they wanted. Usually a president, at least a front-running president, wants less debates. A challenger usually wants more. It means more TV time, more time to get the message out, to be seen by new voters. 1976 reversed that trend a bit as Ford was president and happened to be the underdog. In 1980... Carter came close to refusing to debate at all. Reagan's campaign would debate, but only if third-party candidate Anderson was in the debate as the sponsor of the League of Women Voters insisted. In the end, to get rid of Anderson, Reagan's team, led by James Baker, insisted on a single debate one week before the elections. Carter was under heavy criticism for having refused to debate previously. It was a way to get rid of Anderson and a way to move on with a debate in the election. He took it. Carter's poor performance in this one debate will give him no time to recover. Indeed, there was no doubt that James Baker is one of the better debate negotiators. In 1980, he got that one debate before, and that was probably his biggest victory, that one debate before the 1980 election. This did two things. Baker's estimation, it limited the amount of time that Carter could respond to anything that occurred in the debate. But it also would, in effect, freeze Reagan's lead. This is a little-noticed trend. A debate announcement freezes an election, in a sense, because everyone is focused for weeks on the upcoming debate. So it's hard for an underdog candidate to change the election or create news. Reporters just keep going back to the theme of, well... Wait for those debates. This happened to Carter, but the date also boxed him in. Had he been done better in the debate than he did, he would have only a week to benefit from that gain. And since he didn't perform well, he had no time to recover. The election result, in terms of the number of states Carter won, was worse than most political experts had predicted before that debate was held. Baker also got the two debates in 1984 and told Dukakis' negotiator in 1988 that they would get two debates, take it or leave it. There's few concessions to the Dukakis camp. They did agree to a VP debate, now precedent anyway, and a riser on Dukakis' platform that would help to adjust for the candidate's height vis-a-vis President Bush. Not without an insult during the negotiations, apparently, from Baker. What is your guy going to do, he said, according to one person in negotiations, when he has to go up against Gorbachev? Something else occurred in these debates. In 1984 and 1988, a new device was created, a memo of understanding between the two parties. This agreement hasn't always rubbed everyone the right way. In 1984, after 60 potential media panelists were rejected between the two campaigns as they kind of one-upped each other and The League of Women Voters issued a press release attacking both sides in the negotiation, and top newspapers pulled their reporters from being involved in any TV debates. The League of Women Voters conduct election debates all over the country for state and local positions, some congressional races, some primary. And in 1976, they had run the debates. When the League saw the 1988 agreement between the two parties, the restrictions on who could participate, just the two major parties, and what questions could be asked, and who would be the moderators. They called it a fraud on the American people. Undeterred, Paul Kirk and Frank Farankov, representatives of their respective Democrat and Republican parties, formed the Commission on Presidential Debates in 1987. And since then, they have handled presidential debates. The League of Women Voters was not happy at the time and issued a scathing press release that said they are trying to steal the debates. Unlike the commission, no one at the League has a stake in the election. But what the parties did have were the two guys. And indeed, when the League sent invites that year to their debate, the campaigns declined. Despite the creation of the CPD ostensibly for better negotiations and smoother debates, it was still not completely guaranteed that there would be debate between presidential candidates. Indeed, in 1992, the Bush campaign held off, not sure about how they'd do against challenger Clinton. Then a campaign of Clinton staffers, initially done at the local level, but it spread throughout the country, of staffers wearing chicken suits, wherever the president would be, Made debate avoidance impossible, especially after a Midwestern train tour where President Bush debated with a man in a chicken suit and asked him if he was
2: from the Arkansas River. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host Nerdwallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances.
1: He asked for the most. He asked for four debates to be held in the last four weeks of the election running up to Election Day. Something that a frontrunner really wouldn't like. Some clinton aides felt that they'd really done it. As they met Bush's debate negotiators in Mickey Cantor's office, their big fear was, were they going to have to go up against Jim Baker? They knew how he had ripped previous teams to shreds. The guy negotiated in the Middle East, for God's sakes, an aide told the newspaper anonymously. But indeed, they were relieved when Bob Teeter and a few other aides walked through the door instead of Baker, and the Clinton people got most of what they wanted, a town hall-type debate. We were hooting and hollering in the office when we got that, Paul Begala said. Clinton, they felt, was the rock star of retail politics, and he'd be able to touch the audience, feel their pain, which in the second debate, it was a town hall style, he certainly did. Yet Bush's people in 92 hadn't quite seen it as a threat either. Just a moderate speaker in large audiences, President Bush had always been good with little groups. And the Richmond, Virginia audience, they felt, may be sympathetic to him. So they agreed. Most importantly for Clinton's people, who were in the front-runner spot at this point in 92, they avoided a debate the Sunday before the election. Not that the Bush people didn't try. When it was proposed by the Bush negotiating team, Paul Brontus, who had been in the room for the Caucus bush debate negotiations, remembered what James Baker had told them when they asked for a debate right before Election Day. No way will I let you get at my candidate the last week. If a statement is made, he will have no time to correct it. Well, once Brontus quoted back Baker's statement to the Bush campaign team, that was enough to kill that idea in that session. So what appears to be all simple matters are all things that can be negotiated in the pregame phase of a debate to try to influence the results. For at least what candidates think will be their advantage. Doesn't always work out that way, by the way. Carter, who initially didn't want debates, by the end of election was saying that the debate was what got him the election, since Ford had made a big mistake in the second debate. Kennedy's team wanted a lot of debates. But as it turned out, they did very well in the first debate, and then Nixon started to do better in the second and third, and it was a draw in the fourth. One debate would have been better for him. So in everything we're talking about today, we're talking about what teams think will be better for their candidate. Doesn't always mean they'll be right. But there are many ways you can try to influence these results. A panel of moderators, you know, seems innocent, right? It's That's good, though, if you want your candidate to be a bit evasive. If there's four reporters asking questions, they can only take so much time. And follow-up is difficult. You have to move on to the next reporter. So candidates can dodge. A single moderator, like a James Lair type situation, can press answers, follow up, and keep a deeper focus on one question. Town halls add some strange dynamics because you've got all these other players who don't even know their players and hopefully are are screened for their randomness and their impartiality. And they're not professional reporters. Now this is important. 1992, Bush was totally thrown off during the debate when a woman asked him about the deficit, but meant the economy. Clinton then answered the question and understood what she meant. He answered that question about the economy. Bush was just simply confused and couldn't respond properly. A professional journalist would never have made such a mistake. People in town hall settings just simply are more timid than a reporter and faced with a even a challenger for the presidency of the United States is not normally someone that they're going to meet in their lives. And so they can be a little more timid in terms of follow-up, but they can also react emotionally in ways that can either help or hurt a candidate. Why debate negotiations can even be done so to make debates invisible. This is what was widely contended about the 1996 election when President Clinton, as an incumbent in the lead, didn't want to necessarily debate, but knew that uh, he was an able debater and he could handle it if needed. And Bob Dole, though the challenger, normally the challenger wants to debate, wasn't thrilled about a series of debate with you know, younger, more energetic, better debater Clinton, and agreed to just two debates, both of them during the World Series and without third-party candidate Perot. That decision was widely criticized. Third-party candidates, perhaps the American voter, are the loser in negotiations between our two major parties. The CPD rule is that a candidate would need 15% in five major polls to be up on the stage against the two-party candidates. It's a very high standard, only reached by Ross Perot in 1992. Anderson would not have gotten there in 1980, particularly if you're talking about five polls needed to show 15%. Would have been under that at the time of uh, setting debates. The 1960 debate would result from the removal of Section 315 from the Federal Communications Code. Now, this is the this is an equal time provision. This was suspended in 1960 to allow the networks to have a debate between the Democrats and the Republicans. In the argument for this suspension before Congress, we see from the network representatives the other side of this question. They were arguing if the rule remained, that in 1960 they would have had to include 14 people up on the stage. Not just Kennedy and Nixon, but also Merritt Curtis of the Constitution Party, Farrell Dobbs of the Socialist Workers, even Simon Gould of the American Vegetarian Party. In addition to Prohibitionists, the other strains of Socialists, and many other parties. This leads to the chicken and egg question. Candidate from the Constitution Party could speak. Maybe they'd get that 15%. But then, why should they get a chance to have TV coverage if they don't have enough supporters to justify it? Versus a party with seats in Congress, governorships, and a chance of winning the election if it were held on the day that we're discussing the debate at all. It does seem like that 15% standard is fairly high. And it is, of course, designed by two parties who don't want third parties in generally. Maybe it could be lowered to 8%. But then, do candidates just run celebrities to get to that 8%? Well, some third parties are already running celebrities without even that standard, but that's certainly possible. Or maybe just once. We could have that debate that the networks loathed in 1960. We could just have one of those debates, all 14 people on the stage, two major party candidates along with all those others, and then go ahead and have the two or three debates and see what happens. Why it doesn't happen? Well, that the answer to that question reveals where the power lies. We don't have such debates because one or the other major party candidates would back out. There's no other legal mechanism and and not really enough popular interest in seeing all these third-party candidates to force them to do this right now could certainly change. So we've learned that there are a lot of chefs in the stew besides Romney and Obama. Managing a debate before it happens. And there's a lot of precedent in history, so some negotiation in 2012 wasn't even necessary, it's just accepted now. But at least... The debate itself is real, right, once the cameras start? Well, I mean, yes, of course it is. And you might think that you're seeing the real candidate. And of course, you will be. But you'll also be seeing the preparation of that candidate, who the candidate is after they've got a briefing book in their head. You're seeing the preparation or lack thereof, at their best or at their worst. Debate prep in 1960. Thorough for then Senator Kennedy, he was given an extensive briefing book, which they called the Nixonopedia, which had every one of Nixon's opinions on things. And he had note cards on important issues given to him by his aides Ted Sorensen and Richard Goodwin. They peppered the senator with questions the night before and the morning of the debate. And right before he had to show up to the studio, took a little nap. He had supper alone. Nixon, on the other hand, had figured, okay, I'm in Chicago for the debate. I'll meet with the Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners and try to get some of the union vote in the morning. But it was a hostile crowd, and he was annoyed by the meeting. And after that meeting, he retreated to his hotel room. One of his staff members said, we kept pushing for Nixon to have some give and take with the staff. But Nixon refused. The vice president just simply said he knew how to debate. And indeed he did. Nixon had won his first congressional seat principally because he challenged a long-time Democratic incumbent to a debate and beat him. Yet after his poor performance with Senator Kennedy in that 1960 debate, he would then engage in more rigorous preparation for the second and third, which most viewers thought he won. Despite their more extensive preparation in 1960, even Kennedy's staff would not have recognized the scene in 1992 as Dick Darman, Bush campaign advisor, arrived to the White House with sunglasses and a saxophone from Toys R Us. He was to be the Clinton in the debate prep. And John Sanunu went as far to put on a set of plastic ears for his role as the Perot in the debate prep. They were to go through a complete rehearsal of the debate. And indeed, it's common these days for people to relish that role of being one or the other opponent of the debate prep. And it's announced in the newspapers, Romney's opponent, pretending to be Obama, will be Bob Portman of Ohio. Sununu and Darman were a bit light on the president. His prep was light compared to Governor Clinton's. A quick rehearsal, and then a look at the briefing books and some questions around the Oval Office. Several full-dress rehearsals were held in Camp Clinton. Washington lawyer Bob Bennett played Bush, and Oklahoma Congressman Mike Snyder played Ross Perot. The two went after Clinton aggressively, and then Clinton was critiqued by a group of judges. They did this several times. In the first dress, the campaign staff acting as judges scored Clinton third in the debate. He had forgotten the good lines. He waffled on the draft question. He was defensive. When asked about his time in Russia, he was supposed to mention how Bush's father ran against McCarthy. Clinton didn't even remember to use the line. The campaign staff was heavy with criticism, so much so that VP candidate Al Gore was dispatched for a quick consoling phone call afterwards. Jim Carville said it was all part of the plan. The job was to cream him, to keep him from getting complacent. And indeed, in the real debate, Clinton would remember and use the line about President Bush's father. Carville may have perfected the prep, but he didn't invent this dress rehearsal. Ford's campaign in 1976 did a full dress, including a pretend media asking questions. As Ford's media advisor said, the prep is so that nothing can surprise the president. Jimmy Carter, on the other hand, thought it was unnatural and told the press, I am not going to practice against a dummy opponent or make up cute speeches or anything like that. His debating would be real. But after the first debate, That real performance was considered poor compared to the president. And so Carter upped his practice. And as president, he engaged in a limited prep. He did have a California political science professor who knew Governor Reagan come in and try to prepare him for his debate against him. Carter's aides cringed when the professor, who knew Reagan well, made the president look foolish in the debate. Every time President Carter said something, the political science professor, Sam Popkins, would come out with a folksy line. I thought the Marines were going to take out my kneecaps after I beat him in that debate. Yet Carter was now president. He lacked the time and, to some extent, the interest in practicing more rehearsals. In 1996, Bob Dole refused prep, thinking it was silly. As Dole said, It's like filling up the tank with gas. There's only so much more you can put in. Yet it's clear if you want to win, you can't fully follow uh, Dole's thinking. One of the most noticed scenes of the 1992 debates, and it was in the second debate, President Bush, and we're talking, of course, about H.W. Bush, he glanced at his watch. It looked like he was just looking to get out of that room, to get out of there, and kind of symbolic of his presidency being over and all of that. Certainly caused him to lose the debate in the eyes of most people watching. Yet that shot should never have happened. The rules of the debate were that there would be no reaction shots. You shouldn't have been able to see Bush glancing at his watch. Only the candidate speaking would be on camera. But in Clinton's debate prep, the staff had prepared an entire mock studio that looked exactly like that town hall. They knew where the cameras would be, and they found that if Clinton got up in certain spots, he could stand in an area where the camera had to show either Bush or in other areas where it had to show Perot in the reaction shot. This kind of prep paid dividends in that debate. I still think that, like any kind of live TV, debates are still so important, and no matter how much negotiations and scripting that goes on, there's still always a chance that anything can happen. But I hope it's been useful to see some of the things that go on before debates, and that they're not that new. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. And if you do like the program, I can't say it enough, please tell someone about it so that they can become a listener. Thanks for listening.
3: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. vs. China